we're back to the routine. And I like routine. Uh, right now, our plan is to probably start up Bible study in February. We're going to try to do some meetings in January on Wednesday nights, and I'll talk a little more about that next week. But we uh, have been in a series on the 12 disciples, technically really the 12 apostles. And I know it's been over a month since we were in that series, so let me do a quick review for you, bring you up to date. If you're here this morning for the first time, it'll bring you up to speed really quickly. So we've been looking at the 12 disciples. We've been taking one each Sunday and just kind of walking through their lives. Basically, the way to understand it is there are three groups of four that the Bible talks about. So you find the, the, the groups of four, often you find them together. And you find unique things about them as a group. Uh, each one of them has a leader, somebody who kind of comes to the forefront to lead that group. Uh, the first group that we, we talked about um, was uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And you often find those four mentioned together. Uh, Peter tended to be the, the head of that group. He tended to be the most vocal one. Actually, out of the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, he is the most vocal. And he's the one that really is talked about the most. Um, the next group that we went through was a group with uh, Philip in charge, and that was Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, and we're going to look at Thomas this morning. And then uh, the last group of four, which are the two Judases, Simon and James, and we'll talk about those in the weeks ahead. We've, we've tried to pull out one big principle for each one of the disciples, each one of the apostles. And Peter, we got the idea that, you know what, God uses people who are struggling. You don't have to have your act all together. To, to follow Christ, and you see that in the life of Peter. Andrew is someone who's always bringing people to Jesus, and we, we talked about the importance of that for us. James is one who reminds us that um, it's okay to have passion, but you've got to also have mercy. Uh, John taught us the idea of, of truth balanced with love, and that while it's important that we stand for the truth, it's also important that we love. We talked about Philip with... Uh, the idea of kind of missing the big picture. Sometimes it's easy to miss what God is at work doing around you. We talked about Nathaniel and the danger of, of prejudice, of the idea of having a preconceived idea that things are going to be a certain way. And then uh, we talked about Matthew, who probably is one of the most encouraging to all of us because Matthew was the worst of the worst. And yet Jesus said, you're the guy I want to pick uh, to be my disciple. This morning, we're going to talk about Thomas. Now, when I say Thomas, there's often a word that comes to mind immediately, and that word would be doubting. Yeah. Here's a problem. That's not fair. Okay? It's not fair. And we're going to hopefully get a better picture this morning of why it's not fair. You see, when we look at Thomas because he doubted, but the reality of it is all the disciples doubted. The reality of it is when Mary saw Jesus at the tomb at, at the resurrection and went back and told the disciples, they all doubted. When you had the men on the road to Emmaus, they doubted. So it's kind of an unfair thing to tag him with that idea of doubting. Really, a, a more accurate description is he's a pessimist. Okay? Uh, and, and, and let me try to help you figure out. You know, pessimist is a person who sees it ha a glass half empty, Optimus sees it half full. Here's the way I would help you understand it. When you get into your car this afternoon after the service, and you turn the ignition on, and you see your gas gauge, 
Is it full or do you focus on the fact that it's empty? See, I'm one of those guys, when a tank is half full, I'm looking to, for a gas station. So you need to know, if I drive off the road and I'm in a snowbank and I can't get out and my car is on empty, you need to know this. I had heat for at least a half a gallon of gas, a tank of gas. Because I just, I'm one of those guys that when I look at a gas gauge, I look at how empty it is. I don't look at how full it is. Some of you, on the other hand, you're like, half a tank. Man, I can go another week. I mean, the light hasn't even come on yet. You know, i got to wait till there's bells and whistles before I look for a gas station. You're one of those crazy, you look at a gas station, you look at how much is in it. And you're like, I, I can keep going forever. Now you got, you know, now we got all these little things on the car. You know, it's like how many miles still empty. Oh, for you all, that's like the most awesome tool in the world. Uh, it's funny because my motorcycle has one of those, and I was getting down, and I was getting, and, and again, I'm a half full person, so uh, you know, I'm watching it, and I keep watching it, and I keep watching it, and it got down to zero. And I mean, you got to realize, for me, I mean, that's like panic mode. You know, that's dear God, don't let me run out of gas. Don't let me run out of gas. Don't. Let me, what I realized then is actually there's another reserve of the gallon that it didn't tell me about that. Uh, now that I know that, I feel a little more comfortable. But, again, everyone's like that. Tom, uh, Thomas is one of those guys that, I mean, he always looked at the negative. And, and we're going to see that today. And, some, and so some of you are going to really relate well to him. Uh, and some of you are going to go, I just don't get it. Uh, but pessimist is more of a better uh, description of him. Thomas, uh, he, he's known as the twin. We know nothing of his twin. So he either had another sibling, a brother or sister, that was identical or paternal. I don't know. What do they call that? What, what do they call that? Paternal, identical. Okay. So there, there, something like that. We, we just know he was known as a twin. Uh, history says that after the disciples all take off, he probably goes to the area of India and ministers and then ultimately dies by a spear. Uh, having a spear, uh, martyred uh, with a spear. Uh, the Gospel of John gives us the most insight to Thomas. And there's three specific instances. We're going to look at them this morning, and then we're going to jump to let's learn some things that help us this week as we live our life. So let me take you to our first story. The first story uh, is, is, is a very familiar one to, to many of you. It's in John chapter 11. I'll put it up on the screen. Here's what it says. Um, and he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Now let me bring you up to speed at this point. Here's what's happened. Jesus is ministering in the wilderness. The disciples are with him. Things are going great. I mean, the, things are so awesome. I mean, they're just seeing people come, and all kinds of great things are happening, and everything's going really, really well. And they come to him, and they say, Lazarus is sick. And the disciples then, and so Jesus doesn't do anything at that moment. The, the Bible story tells us that Jesus waits a couple of days. And so, really, when you look at the whole background behind the story, the idea is kind of like this. If you're from, from a disciple's point of view, the disciples are looking at it, they come and say, Lazarus is sick, and Jesus is like, okay, 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 we'll go, but I, things are going so well here, we're going to stay here and keep ministering, keep ministering, and the disciples say, yeah, 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 everything's going great here in the wilderness. And then... Jesus looks at the disciples, and he makes this statement. He said, no, you guys don't understand what's going on. Lazarus isn't just sick now. Lazarus is dead. 
And it was just flat out there for the disciples to deal with. And notice what happened. And for your sake, I'm glad it wasn't there. He said, there's a reason I waited two days. It wasn't because everything was going great here. I waited two days because I didn't want to be there and everybody want me to try to do something. And yet, for this, I will give another opportunity to believe in me. Come and let's go to him. Now, here's the problem. Jesus now looks at the disciples in the middle of everything going great and says, okay, guys, it's time now. We're going to go, we're going to, go to where Lazarus is. Now, the problem was the last time they were in the area that Lazarus was in, people tried to kill Jesus. They wanted him dead. So this is a suicide mission, and the disciples know that. The disciples know, in fact, they've had this big argument with Jesus and prior to this about should we go, shouldn't we go, should, what, this is why we shouldn't, this is why we should. They've had this argument with Jesus. They've been arguing with Jesus about why this is a bad idea. There are bad ideas, and there's really bad ideas. This is a really bad idea. Don't go see Lazarus. And Jesus finally looks at them and says, come, let's go to him. And this is where Thomas speaks up. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go to and die with him. In other words, he should have just stopped at let's go to. But that pessimistic side comes out, and, and Thomas goes, okay, let's go to and die with him. I mean, okay, if he's, gonna, if he's so intent on going to Jerusalem area, being killed, you know what's going to happen. They kill him. They're coming after us. Let's just all go together. We'll all die together. Let's just get it over with. That's Thomas's idea. Let's just do this. Now, we look at that as a negative, but here's what I want you to see in this. There's this, there's this pessimistic thing that is here, but here's what I want you to understand. One, one commentator described it this way. He called it a heroic pessimism. And, and, and here's the idea. Thomas wasn't against following Jesus. In fact, Thomas is saying, we'll follow him no matter what the cost. If he wants to go to Jerusalem and die, let's go. We're all in this together. There's no hesitation on his part about, oh, no, the cost is too great. Oh, no, we shouldn't do that. Okay, Jesus, like you go, tell us how it goes and come back. There's, okay, if you're going to go, we're all in and I'm going too. And all the disciples, it's interesting, Follow Thomas's lead and go with him. And although Thomas has that pessimistic attitude, there's a heroic pessimism here that says, you know what? I'm all in when it comes to following Jesus. And there's something in that that, that we should honor. Okay? The second story is another very familiar story. It's in John chapter 14. You know John chapter 14. We read it at a lot of funerals and stuff like that. You know, that's that passage about, you know, I'm, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, and in my Father's house are many mansions, and blah, blah, blah. That's the, 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 the context of this story. And notice what it says in John 14. Uh, and you know where I'm going. Jesus tells them all about this, in my Father's house and all this. And you know where I'm going and how to get there. No, we don't, Thomas said. We don't have any idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus told him, I am the way, yes, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but by means of me. If you know who I am, then you would have known who the Father is. From now on, you know him, and you've seen me, and you've seen him. Jesus looks at the disciples at, at, at a crucial point in the ministry and says, look, I'm getting ready to go away, guys. And, and there's a purpose for me going away. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And we find great comfort in that when, 
we're at the, the, the funeral of a Christian and we understand that we'll see him again and all of those kinds of things. But when Jesus makes this, this statement to the disciples, they're all confused. And Thomas is the one who speaks up. And Thomas looks at Jesus and he says, okay, wait a minute. If you're leaving, I, I'm leaving too. You just got to tell me how to get there. Tell me what road to take. Tell me what the path is. And I'm, I'm all on board. There's this commitment to Jesus <laughs> that when Jesus says, look, I'm getting ready to go away, Thomas is first on board to say, okay, whoa, 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 stop, back up. You said we can follow you. Uh, we don't know where you're going. We don't know how to get there. You tell us, and we're on board. And Jesus stops and says, no, I'm talking about something much bigger, Thomas, than just following me in an earthly fashion. And explains to him that, that there's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. That's the second story reference that we have to Thomas. So you see this committed guy who, who, who is committed to Jesus no matter what. All Jesus needed to do was tell him which way to go, and he was on board. And then we come to the passage that's probably most familiar to you, which is the one that happens at the resurrection. Let me paint the, the story first. You have Jesus crucified. I believe Christ was crucified on a Friday. I believe he rose again on a Sunday morning. Uh, on, on that Sunday morning, you have Jesus at the tomb, resurrected Jesus, meets with Mary. Mary runs back and tells to the disciples. That's in the morning. The story we're looking at now happens later that evening. And here's what it says, John, uh, John chapter 20. That evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors in fear of the Jewish leaders, when suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. After greeting them, he showed them his hands and his side, and how wonderful was their joy as they saw the Lord. So they're all locked in this room because they know that if they kill Jesus, they're coming after them. They're all locked in a room trying to figure out what their next play is, what the next thing they're going to do is. And Jesus shows up in the middle of them. And they are thrilled because now they have seen him. Mary had seen him before. They doubt a little bit, but now they've got to see him too. And then notice what it goes on to say. He spoke to them again and said, If the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. He breathed on them and told them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. If you refuse to forgive them, they're unforgiven. One of the disciples, Thomas the twin, was not there at the time with the others. So Thomas isn't here in this scene. So the other disciples start, when they find Thomas, or Thomas finds them, they tell him what happened. And they say, Thomas, you're not going to believe this, man. We were all gathered up in a room, and Jesus came in the middle of us, and he showed us his hands and his side, and it was just incredible. And he talked to each one of us, and he, he gave us this incredible challenge to go out and, 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 and share the gospel with people, and he empowered us to be able to do that. And, and, and this is awesome, Thomas. You should have been there. You missed it. And notice what Thomas says. When they kept telling him, we have seen the Lord, he replied, I won't believe. I won't believe it until I see the nail wounds in his hand and put my fingers into them and place my hand into his side. Thomas said, look, I've been burned once. I'm discouraged because I wanted to follow Jesus wherever he went and he didn't take me with him and he didn't tell me how to do this. And, 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 and I've been having my own little pity party thing going on, and now I missed it. He showed up, and I wasn't there. And you guys keep telling me. Thomas said, look, I've had enough. You tell me when, when I can touch him, when I can put my finger in there, when I can put my hand on the other side, then I'll believe. Notice what happens next. Because I, I, I don't want you to miss this part, because this part I think we ignore a lot. 
Notice what happens next. Going on, guys. Eight days later. For eight days, Thomas struggled. The disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. And that's an important part. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them and greeting them. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers, put your finger into my hands, put your hand into my side. Don't be faithless any longer, but believe. And then, probably one of the most important statements in all of the New Testament is made by Thomas. And he says, My Lord and my God. Now, that's how the story ends with Thomas in the Bible. Okay? Uh, and I think there's a lot of lessons for us in here. So let me jump through three of them and try to pull. I'm going I'm to try to pull one out of each passage. All right? Um, Here's the first one. I think there's a lesson here about comfort. And let me explain to you what I mean. When Jesus is in the wilderness, things are going great. When Jesus is in the wilderness, the disciples are comfortable. Nobody's, nobody's pursuing them. They're not under the threat of death like they are in the, in the big city. They're watching God work. Things are exciting. And the reality of it is they don't want to leave. The reality of it is, in order to follow Jesus, it could get ugly. The reality of it is, in order to follow Jesus to go to where Lazarus is, they may die. And you see, they're all in to follow Jesus, but the reality of it is, they're very comfortable in following Jesus right now, because it's not costing them anything. But if Jesus goes to see Lazarus, all of that changes. When Jesus goes to see Lazarus, it's going to get really messy and really hard and really difficult. So why would we want to do that? Let's just stay here. And they spend a lot of time in John chapter 11 arguing with Jesus back and forth, trying to convince, trying to explain. Finally, Jesus looks at him. He's had enough of the argument. He goes, look, Lazarus is dead, and we got to go. So I'm going. And it's Thomas who steps up with that heroic pessimism and says, you know what, all right. If that means following you, we're going to die, then you know what? We're going to follow you. In other words, and here's the lesson I think for us, they got over the idea that the goal in their Christian life was to be comfortable, no matter what the cost. As I talk to people, I find that one of the biggest challenges that I see with Christian people today is this. It's really hard to do right in a world that always does wrong. So I talk to business people, and this is what I hear. We're trying to be honest in our business. That guy's cutting corners, and people follow them instead of, people, people go do business with them instead of us. I hear it from teachers when teachers go, you know what, I'm trying to challenge these kids and push these kids, but I have to fight the parents and I have to fight the school, and I have to fight my colleagues, and I have to fight everybody else in order to do it. And sometimes I wonder, is it worth it? And I talk to people who, I, I get this from high school kids, college kids a lot, and kids, let me tell you what's going to happen. 
If you have a strong work ethic and you go into the workplace, you need to know that is not the way the workplace works. And you're going to go in and you're going to start doing a good job and you're going to be meticulous and you're going to be on time and you're going to do all those things. And here's what's going to happen. You're going to start making the people who, look, who, let, who back off and push stuff to the side, you're going to make them look bad. And they're not going to be happy about that. And they're going to start pressuring you to do the job the way they do the job. And what happens to a lot of kids is they get tired of fighting it and they get tired of trying to do what's right because they want to be comfortable in the world in which they work, so they choose the comfort over doing what's right. And you're going to fight it over and over and over again. And I think one of the lessons you see in Thomas here is Thomas says, you know what, there's this heroic pessimist that says, you know what, we're going to follow you no matter what the cost. That means we die, we die. That means whatever it is, you tell us where you're going and we're all in, no matter what the cost. And, and I think as Christians, we've got to get to the point that we have to say, you know what? I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow the Bible. I'm going to do what God wants me to do, no matter what. And if that means it's a little tougher, then it's a little tougher. And if that means that you're not going to be as comfortable, then you're not going to be as comfortable. Kids, if that means that everybody has to look bad because you're just doing a good job, then everybody's got to look bad because you're going to do a good job. You're going to make a decision that you're going to do what's right. Those of you who are in elementary school, let me talk to you for a second too. There's going to be a lot of pressure even on you to cut corners, to copy off of another kid's homework, to... Try to, when the teacher asks you how long you practice, you fudge the numbers because you don't want to look bad. You've got to make a decision whether you're going to be comfortable in this world or you're going to do what's right. And one of the things that you see about Thomas, even with this pessimism, one of the things you see about Thomas is Thomas said, you know what, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to follow Jesus, and if that means I die, that means I die, but we're going to do this right. We're not going to focus on being comfortable in the wilderness because it's more difficult in the city. And I think there's a great lesson in there for us. I think a second lesson that you see in this thing in John chapter 14 is you see a commitment on Thomas's part that basically says this. God, you tell me what to do. You tell me where to go, and I'll do it. Just tell me the way, and, and, and I'll go down that road. I think we need people as Christians who that's our attitude. Because here's the bottom line. You know as well as I do. We excuse our behavior so many times in so many different ways. We, we come up with all kinds of ways. Instead of saying, all right, God, what do you want me to do with, 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 our, with our money? I'll give you a great example. With our money. Instead of saying, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to handle this? We come up with all these crazy things to excuse our behavior with regard to our finances. We do it with our spouse. With our spouse, we go, you know what, you know, we get short with our spouse. Now, let's understand what we're doing here. This is the person who committed to stay with us no matter what. So it's easy. We get the attitude sometimes like, you know what, look, 
I told you that I loved you when I married you. If it changes, I'll let you know, so just get over it. And honestly, I have watched people treat their hired... I watched farmers and employers treat their hired hands better than they treat their spouse. And that's just wrong. That's wrong on so many different levels. There should be nobody, nobody who gets more praise and who gets more encouragement and who you talk better to than your spouse. But yet, we tend to excuse like, oh, you know, you know, what was it? What was it, my wife? Oh, I know, yeah, yesterday. Yesterday, we were, what were we doing? It was something about, we're in the same corner of the kitchen, okay? And my wife doesn't understand that's the prep corner. So she always is like standing there. And I'm like, honey, the, go over there and do that. This is the prep corner. And so we were, was it breakfast? Yeah, it was, bre- it was breakfast. It was butter. It was butter. It was butter. That's what it was. It was butter. So I made breakfast. Thank you. Uh, I made breakfast on Saturday morning. And, and one of the things that we eat every Saturday, we have kind of a standard thing. And on Saturday morning, I make grits and I make uh, sausage. And so I have grits and sausage. And so uh, I've got, I, and, and you got to put butter on the grits if you don't know that. You, you have to put butter on grits. So, um, and you want to put it on when it's hot so that it melts. So she's standing there in a prep area doing something with the coffee maker. And so I've got to kind of push her into the corner so I can get the drawer open to get the butter knife out to get to the uh, uh, refrigerator. To open up the thing, and she's like right there. This all take a place in this area, like this big. And so I get the butter out, and I cut it up, and I put it on, and I said, "Okay, move over." And and she's like, <laughs> "You got to know my wife to know this." My wife's like, "Move over, please." <laughs> and I said, "I'm serving you. I mean, I'm I'm putting butter on your grits. Just move over, you know." You know, why does this deserve a please? And then she said, <laughs> and then she goes, and you wonder where your son gets it from. Because <laughs> this is something I've always gotten on him about lately is uh, you can ask please. You can ask nicely and, and, and things like that. And uh, she goes, and, you know, the apple didn't fall far from the tree here. And, I, and we got to say, we're laughing and joking about the whole thing. But it was a simple thing like, she wanted me to say, please. And now this morning I'm thinking about it and I'm going, why was that so hard? I mean, if there's anybody I had to treat with honor and dignity and go, hey, could you please slide over? I should have said, can you please slide over because I, your humble husband, am putting butter on your grits so that you can enjoy them. But I didn't think about that. That's what I'm going to say next time. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. But, 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 but here's the point. In other words, we know the Bible says to honor our spouses. What, why don't we just simply like Thomas go, okay, Lord, just tell me what to do. I'll go do it. Instead, we come up with all of these reasons for this crazy stuff that we do. Same thing. We come up with all these reasons at work why we should be able to cut corners. You should. Let me tell you something. If you're a Christian this morning, you ought to be the best employee in that place. Not because you're better. But just simply because you're not working for your employer, you're working for God. You're, you're working for the highest authority there is to do your job. Again, I was I, in college, one of the things I did to pay for, for college was 
Um, I, I worked as a janitor cleaning the men's dorms. Okay. What do you know about men's college dorms and the restrooms? Okay. I mean, it's kind of a pretty humble job, reality was. But you know what we were taught from day one? And, and I'm, not trying to be, I'm not trying to be sacrilegious here, but I want you to understand how seriously we were taught to take that job. We were taught to clean the restroom as if the next person to use that restroom was Jesus Christ himself. That's that simple. So you didn't walk out of doing your job that night until the idea was, if Christ could physically walk in and use this restroom, I wouldn't be ashamed of how that place looks. And you think about it for a minute. You start to do your job with that kind of mindset, it changes how you do everything. Because you know what? Colossians says that you don't work for man, you work for God. And whatever you put your hand to, you do it as unto the Lord, not unto men. We just got to learn to follow what it says. And that's what Thomas said. Lord, you just tell me. And then the last thing is this. Here's where you see the negative side of his pessimism. And you've got to walk with me through this for a few minutes, and, and, and you'll see where I'm going with this. But you need to understand, Thomas had walked with the other disciples for three years. So Thomas and Jesus and the disciples, they all walked together, they all walked together, they all walked together, they all did stuff together, they all sat and learned together, they all spent all this time together, and then Jesus dies on the cross. The next morning, uh, the morning of the resurrection, all the disciples are where? Oh, there's one free. No, I can't, I can't grab you, honey, as much as I want to. Um, I mean, the disciples are all gathered there. And you've got all the disciples in a room by themselves. And who's not there? Thomas. Why? Here's what I think. I think, and, and this is what you see with pessimism, there's a danger with pessimism that you automatically go to the dark side with things. You always look for the negative. And I think Thomas had so much of a desire and a love for the Lord and a passion for the Lord. When, when Jesus went away and Thomas couldn't go with him, I think Thomas's response is, I just can't deal with people right now. I just need to go be by myself. I just need to work this through myself. And Thomas does the one thing that hurts him the most here. He withdraws from everybody else. So Thomas is now off to the side by himself, struggling with what he has been through. The other guys, the other ten guys at this point, who had gone through the exact same thing, are working through it together. But Thomas is over by himself. Because pessimism tends to focus on the negative, and when pressure comes, what happens? You tend to withdraw. And honestly, you tend to get depressed. And you set yourself up for depression. And you find this over and over again in Scripture. You find this with Elijah. When Elijah goes through the depression, what happens? One of the key things is he takes his servant and he leaves his servant. And when he leaves his servant, the depression even gets worse. When he finds himself by himself. And here's the thing. This is what I want you to understand. Had Thomas been with the disciples... What would he have seen? 
the day of the resurrection. He would have seen the resurrected Lord. He would have seen the thing that he desires the most had he been there. But Thomas wasn't there. Thomas was pulled away from everybody and was off by himself somewhere doing something. So Jesus shows up, and the passage says, these guys are thrilled with joy. But who's not joyful? Thomas. Why? Because he pulled himself away. And then, this is what I find so fascinating. So now Jesus, who I believe loves Thomas, and who wants to help Thomas, doesn't, doesn't come around to Thomas for eight days. For eight days, Thomas struggles. For eight days, Thomas has to do with, are they lying? Are they just seeing stuff? Is it really true? Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. And I give Thomas credit because I think part of his mindset is, you know what, if that happened before and Jesus shows up again, I'm going to be there. And so eight days later, Thomas is with the disciples now, and Jesus shows up. And this is what I love about this story. Don't miss this. When Jesus shows up, the first person he goes to is who? Thomas. Does he rebuke him? No. Does he yell at him? No. Does he tell him how dumb he was for what he did? No. What does Jesus do? Thomas, put your fingers in there. Here, put your hand in there. Thomas wants you to believe. And Thomas turns around and gives the greatest response, my Lord and my God. Jesus does not berate him for his doubt. Jesus does not beat him up for his pessimism. But he doesn't encourage it either. And here's the thing with Thomas. Thomas wrestled for eight days when he really didn't have to. But he put himself in a situation by withdrawing that made it hard. And Jesus had to get him to the point to realize that, you know what? This is not, Thomas, how you want to live. And I give Thomas credit for going back to the disciples, but I think there's a lesson in there for us. Look, we talk a lot here about family, and we talk a lot about building relationships, and we talk a lot about encouraging one another. And you need to understand that when you start going through some tough times, the natural tendency within humanity is this, to not tell anyone else about your problems and to withdraw. And if you're, particularly if you're a pessimistic person anyway, it's one of the worst things you can do. It will only spiral you farther away. Jesus will come and Jesus will confront your issues of doubt. But there's a price tag when you go down those roads. Like I say, Jesus doesn't condemn him for it, but Jesus doesn't encourage it either. He understands that, look, some people are going to be wired that way and some people are going to have to go through that. But it is so important for you who are wired that way to understand it doesn't have to be that way. And, and, and that's what I want to encourage you with. But, but the thing is, some of you are like Thomas. It's like, you know what? I was hurt. I was burned. I'm not going to believe it until I see it. I'm not going to trust until I, it, it, it slapped me right smack dab in front of the face. I'm just not going to go there. Okay. But there's a price tag that comes with that. 
understand that. There's a price tag that comes from pulling away. There's a price for that. I'm not saying you don't doubt. We all doubt at some point. I'm not saying you don't struggle. We all struggle at some point. You just don't want to stay there very long. And what happens here in this story is Thomas has to go eight days of struggling when he really didn't have to. And I'm afraid that some of you are struggling right now when the reality of it is you really don't have to be there. You really don't have to stay struggling. Because Jesus will help you with those doubts and Jesus will help you with those frustrations and Jesus will help you with that struggle. But in order to do that, one of the things you have to do is you have to be engaged. And when you have disengaged yourself from it, it makes it worse, not better. And I think that's one of the things, that's one of the negative things you see or not. The, the positive thing is this optimistic, this, this pessimism that's, that's just heroic. To be able to say, I'm, I'm in it no matter what. But yet, this utter pessimism that pulled him so far away that he had to experience something that the other guys didn't. And, and I just want to challenge it because I think that's where some of you might be. And like I said, it's not a magic fix. I'm not saying you just go flip a switch and it all changes. But what I'm saying is you, you, you start down a road to say, you know what, I'm going to engage. This is what happens a lot that I see a lot with people. Is, is, is I watch this play out. And, and what happens is somebody goes through a rough time. Christians come along. They help them. They, the, the people go, okay, I need to get back in church. And they get back in church and they start hanging around Christian people. And then things start going okay. And they start learning and growing. And they, they, they get a little more stability under their feet. And then they think they can handle life without church family and, and, and Christian people around them. And so then they pull away. And, and, and church isn't a priority anymore. And then a crisis comes and they have to try. And they just play the cycle over and over and over. And I watch people who understand this process and they say, you know what, I'm going to engage. And when I go through tough time, I'm going to depend on some of these people to help me through it. We're going to walk through it together with them. And, and, and we're going to get through it. And then we're going to step on to the next step. And, and, and their, life, their, life goes more like, their life goes more like this. And, and other people, their life goes like this. It's just these incredible highs and these incredible lows. The disciples who struggled with watching Jesus crucified on a cross, three days later stood in the presence of a resurrected Jesus. And they were ecstatic. Thomas, who stood and watched a crucified Jesus, has to wait eight days to have that same kind of joy. Because instead of being where he was supposed to be with who he was supposed to be with, he pulled away. And I wonder sometimes what you could experience if you would jump back in and re-engage. Where you don't have to stay where you are. And that, that's my challenge to you. So I end it with this this morning. Thomas viewed life as a pessimist. And it impacted his life experiences. Jesus did not condemn him for his outlook. But he didn't encourage it either. On a positive side, Thomas was devoted and committed to follow Jesus no matter what the cost. Each of us needs to be willing to do the same. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Lord, as we go through tough times, as we struggle, as we have life just happening to us, sometimes it's easy, Lord, to pull away. Lord, sometimes it's easier, we think, to try to deal with it all on our own. But Lord, you designed the church 
so that we could walk the Christian journey together. And Lord, would you help us to be able to do that? Would you help us to build relationships one with another so that as we go through the just the normal things of life, that, Lord, we could walk through it and encourage and help and guide one another. Lord, for those who are struggling this morning, Lord, who there's just a strong desire to do it their way, to not focus on others. Lord, would you just help them to understand the importance of this? Lord, for all of us, would you help us to have that heroic pessimism that says, Lord, no matter what the result, we're not going to be comfortable unless we're doing that which is right. And Lord, just help us to do that. And Lord, may all of us, like Thomas, be willing to follow you no matter what the cost, no matter what the path, no matter, Lord, what the impact on our lives, but that we are committed to you no matter what. So Lord, help us and use us. And when it's all said and done, Lord, may people be able to see you in our lives. These things we ask in your name. Amen. Um, let's stand together and we're going to